Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 55. My next guest is Ken Guidros. Ken is a former pastor, and for the past 20 years, he has designed specialty retirement plans for companies. In 2010, he co-wrote the go-to book on the subject Beyond the 401k. As a parent, he and his wife of 40 years now experienced heartbreak when all their children suffered from substance use at the same time, resulting in one son doing what most would deem unforgivable. When his son went to prison in 2016 for a DUI resulting in a death, Ken added something else to the mix, letters to his son. Remarkably, over several years, it changed their relationship and their lives forever. This led to the book, Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime, in which Ken tells the story of his journey leading to reconnection. Ken also tells the story of how he and his wife were able to manage and stay married without biting each other's heads off, and how he was also able to experience forgiveness and reconnect with God outside the walls of religion. Take a listen. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for being here. Let's dive right in. It's fabulous to be with you. So before we get started, I just want everyone to know that, um, and we'll talk more about this too, is Ken just launched his new book called Letters to My Son in Prison, How a Father and Son Found Forgiveness for an Unforgivable Crime. Um, the title, heavy, um, but it is a day of celebration, isn't it? Because you just launched it today. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm so excited. And I am yes, so excited. it is it is heavy. You're right. It's a strong cup of coffee. But sometimes <laughs> people love strong coffee, right? I, I know I do. Strong coffee gets you through the day. And um I'll admit, I just kind of laid out my whole life. I filleted myself, my marriage, my my parenting, my everything. But you know what? It it I, I'm we're getting some phenomenal feedback, and it's it's probably not for everybody. But I tell you, it, it's um it's definitely touching some lives, and, that, and that's what I care about. I am so glad to to have you on so we can dive deep in kind of that process and what that looked like for you. But again, congratulations. And it's really exciting, actually, to talk to you the day it launched. That's mm. a first for me. So again, congratulations. Thank you. So Ken, tell me, walk me through a little bit. Now, you have three sons. And what's interesting is that parenting first is interesting. <laughs> parenting three sons can't be easy, and they're very close in age. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And all three of them experienced substance use. Mm, yes. Walk me through kind of what that looked like and then what happened. Yeah, it, it was not expected. Let me just say that. Yeah. But, but it happened. Yeah, they did. All three of them struggled and went through. We as a family went through, I don't know, 10 years of darkness. And yeah, it was... It, you know, it started out relatively uh, benign in high school, the typical um, alcohol and, and weed. But but in high school, um, my oldest two, who were very close in age, it, it was a combination of events. As most things are, it's a confluence, right? It's, it's many things. I was a pastor for a church. Things were fine for a while. Then my oldest son decided he didn't want to be part of things. 
he, you know, he starts spinning out and still doing other things. But other son joined him. They both played basketball for the school, kind of got popular. Girls started entering the equation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. And all of a sudden, you know, what what we had kind of become used to started to spin and just I reacted in in the less than perfect way. And it just it went from weed and alcohol to after high school, opioids, oxy, eventually heroin, even meth for one of my boys at one point. So yeah, it just if you had told me 20 years ago that I would just say those last 50 words, <laughs> I would have said, uh, you're talking about a different family. That's not my family, but that is what happened. So yeah, it, it, it was challenging. I mean, challenging is an understatement, mm-hmm. I would imagine. So before we get into the details of this, so this, I would imagine, put a strain on your marriage. Yeah. You know, it did. It did. And uh, any challenge does. And, and this in particular sure. does because it's your kids. You have attack, your spouse has, has attack, and, and those the twain sometimes don't meet, <laughs> right? right? I right. want to pick some ass, and she wants to um, maybe nurture or be supportive. Uh, he wanted to move in one point. Lucas is my middle son, who, right. who, who the book is about, mm-hmm. who, who had some challenge, real challenges um, and tragedies. But, but for example, he, he approaches us, starts texting her, hey, I got kicked out of my girlfriend's apartment. He, he lived in, in um, West Hollywood and, and mm. wanted to move back to our house. Mm-hmm. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? No. Mm-hmm. My wife's like, well, wait, you know, what about this? And and then she drops the old, I couldn't live with myself line, not manipulatively. She wasn't manipulating me, but she did. She kind of said, listen, I can't not let him move back in right now. I just can't. And I was like, you know what? Say no more. You, you drop that line, and I'm yours. Um, I'm, I'm struggling with it. Yeah. She, you know, I'm struggling with it. But anyway, so we had a lot of moments of tension, and she she wants this, I want that. But but I will say, as a married couple, we did uh, give each other some space, mm. and we had a few things brought us together. Grey's Anatomy was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, Grey's. Uh-huh. Bad baby. That show, I don't know. That kept my marriage together. <laughs> it kept me together. And and she gave me some space. I she wanted to, you know, talk about it. I, I was, you know, I wanted to hike. I just wanted to get out. I I'll be honest, I left I we left our old church. I left a lot of my friends. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any friends for a long time. I just I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. I kind of went dark and I did a lot of hiking. I bought a camper van, started spending time in the mountains with my dog, Mumford, mm-hmm. that good old boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's heard more crap. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we, 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 we went opposite ways in how we handled it. But at the end of the day, we didn't turn on each other. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something and, and would love to kind of dive deeper around kind of the hows you, you do that because, you know, parenting with substance abuse is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, um, having worked with many families, it is devastating and yours isn't any different. So tell me a little bit about Lucas and what happened that caused him to go to prison. So. My middle son did struggle with opioids and, and uh-huh. just tended to have that personality that mm-hmm. d- did things to the extreme. And, and yes, through his mid-20s, started to to really go deep. 
mm-hmm. uh, started doing heroin. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, like many addicts, had times of sobriety, sure. had times where he was dialed into friends, AA, other things, and then times of abuse. And one of those near his late 20s, one of those binges mm-hmm. was uh, he was living with a gal in, in Santa Cruz, where we live now and have lived mm-hmm. for 30 years. And she was going to head. She was going to go to a music festival, and so she was going to be gone. So he, he just fell off the wagon, got a bunch of substance, and, and just used it. And then was driving home from work, high as as can be. Took an exit off the freeway that was unexpected, like a completely odd exit onto a very narrow road mm-hmm. that cyclists loved, unfortunately. And guess what? Half a mile on the road, he back rear-ended a, a cyclist. The gentleman's head hit the windshield as he somersaulted over the car. He was dead before he even hit the ground. He was instantaneously killed. And Lucas pulled off, saw in his rearview mirror what happened. Obviously, he was high, so it was all a big cloud, but still saw somebody pull over Mm -hmm. and then sped off. So he fled the scene and was on the lam for a day or two. Late one night, late a, a night, not that night, but the night, the night later, the mm-hmm. night, the next night, mm-hmm. my middle, my youngest son went to his apartment and just said, Hey man, you got to turn yourself in. This is, this isn't going to work. Um, so he did. Wow. So three, four in the morning, he dropped Lucas off at the police station and then came to our house. He drove to our house and then my wife, Joyce was awake for some reason, she just woke up. And at about six in the morning, when he walked in the door, she uh, she said, Lucas killed a man, didn't he? And Chris said, yeah, he did. He was the one. Because it had been on the news. We knew we knew it had happened. Uh-huh. We suspected it. But he had denied it up to that point. So, yeah, that was the that was the moment of truth. Oh, I mean, just hearing that, my heart dropped. So it's like, what is going on in your mind at this point? I mean, it's like, what happens to parents who hear such devastating news? It, it was obviously the worst day of my life. Right. So I go down, Joyce calls up to me and says, honey, you got to come down. So I, I knew something was wrong just by the tenor of her voice. And oh. Chris in the kitchen just says, here's what happened. And he tells us all about his night, what Lucas said, his condition, etc. So I'm kind of a pacer. I can't even sit still, uh-huh. right? I'm just listening, pacing, and I go out of the kitchen, pacing. Finally, I go to to right here where I'm sitting, to mm-hmm. my computer, and I get online to see what who this person was. And was he married? Did he have kids? Mm-hmm. Um, he was. It turns out he was a school teacher, a very popular school teacher in middle school in your town. In my town, right here in a in a in a junior high, I drive by all the time. Uh-huh. And I learned about the name of his wife, Valerie. His name was Rod. And, you know, just all, all the details. And so I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm alone in my office. But I'm, I don't know, just started welling up with tears yeah. and intensity. And I, I just have to leave. I, I go down to my garage. I I'd barely make it into the garage and run around my car, turn over a home. So I saw a turned over Home Depot bucket, just, just sat on, just, just completely lost my mind mm. in emotion and tears and crying. And it was dark. It was still dark. And I remember looking into the corner and praying for, for Rod 
Although it's hard to pray for a man who's dead, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard. To, I mean, what do you say? Like, I remember feeling wordless because it, what do you say to God on behalf of a man who's already dead? Like, I, I sputtered something and it felt patronizing. And then I prayed for Valerie. I remember vividly praying for Valerie and I envisioned her, her trauma, her pacing. And just, you know, I, just, I didn't know, but I prayed for her. I, I deliberately, very distinctly prayed for Valerie. And then I remember thinking about Lucas and not, and just not even mouthing a prayer, just because I was, I was so un, you know, we were years into addiction, right? Mm-hmm. We were years into this and I was done. I was done praying for that kid. And, and, and of mm-hmm. course, at that point, I just felt like, what an asshole. What a, I mean, I had nothing but vitriol at that point for him, mm-hmm. you know. After a decade. So, yeah. And even more of this going on and on and on. Yep. So when you said, I'm done praying for this asshole, were you done with him? I, mean, I was done for a while. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, LA County is a tough place to be. It's a pretty rugged place. And, but yeah. I was like, screw that. I mean, he deserves, I hope he gets his ass kicked. I mean, that's how I felt at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't so you were angry. care. I, I don't care what happens to him. I mean, this, he did it. So he deserves right? he did it. the consequence. Oh, yeah. I mean, he did it. He killed a man. I mean, that's, the worst that's the, worst. the end of the road as far as I'm concerned. So sure, I, as a dad, I mean, you know, there was something there still as a dad. And, yeah. But but of course, you know, that first week, we didn't see him till the arraignment a week later. And for that first week, I I don't think I mouthed a prayer for him at all because mm-hmm. the feelings were so strong and, and the pain for that family, oh. for Valerie, for Rod. And, and even when I saw him at the arraignment, it was tough. Uh, of course, he was pretty hardened. He was, he was, you know, pissed, pissed. pissed. I mean, in, in only a way an addict could be pissed because he was pissed that I didn't post bail. I was like, if you think I'm posting bail, if you think I'm fucking even mm-hmm. going to put a nickel towards your bail, are you kidding me? Right. You know, and I know, I know maybe some parents out there would, would begrudge me, but I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to put a penny towards that. And I mean, all I need is a, a kid who's self-medicated for the last 10 years to come, you know, shall be free. Are you in my house? <laughs> no On your questions. dime. No On my way. nickel. Yeah. It's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. So right. I, I, I was battling with, of course, uh, you know, looking for some parental empathy. And, and, and I certainly had it to a degree. I felt for him when I saw him, you know, the shadow on his face in that, that cage, you know, this thick chain link cage where the, the inmate stands while he's being arraigned, you know? So yeah, I mean, (laughs) did I feel like a dad for my son? Sure. But I also, you know, the bigger feeling at this point is, is, is sadness and and anger that this became us because my other son who's currently addicted to opioids Mm -hmm. (laughs) is right next to me and the other son who who is thank god turned his life around and Mm -hmm. his wife are sitting next to him Mm -hmm. so yes did i have one son that had turned his life around he was actually a junior high school teacher too Mm. yeah I, i think if all three of my boys at that point had been you know at this point, I just don't know what I'm Thank God I at least had one that had turned his life around. I had it, it gave me a flicker. It gave me this flicker 
of hope sure. that maybe, maybe there will be some kind of of renaissance, you know, in my family. Now you gotta you gotta know this is 10 years. Actually, yeah. if you go up to high school when they when, when my eldest Jess was a, a soft, late sophomore, yeah. that's when it happened. That was the tipping point when it all started. There's a very distinct moment where it started. If you, if you go back to that, it's almost 15 years oh. of parental despondency. Like, what did I do? Oh, right. Such fatigue. Fatigue. So, yeah, if I hadn't had one by this point, it would have been even a darker day. I mean, it was pretty dark you know, with yeah. one, but you had three for a decade and with that, the strain on that. So when this happened, they arraigned him and then he was going to prison for how long? You got a 10 year sentence. Wow. Yeah. So you have arraignment and you get, of course, a whole bunch of court dates, but right. yeah, eventually at the sentencing, he was sentenced to 10 years and that that's just the law. You know, it can't be any less than that. California does have a very aggressive inmate reduction program, only because we have too many prisoners. Yeah, we have the biggest in the country, I think. The biggest yeah. in the country. Yeah. And even on a per capita basis, it's way too high. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. yeah. and so for nonviolent crimes, his is a violent crime, obviously, right. but it's deemed nonviolent only because it was manslaughter, not murder. Right. He didn't mean to kill this man. It was right. an accident. And so because of that, he was eligible to do a lot of programs. He could go to AA, he could go to church, he could get an AA degree. He could just do, yeah, all these programs work and, and start to whittle his sentence down. And he actually only served three years of the 10 because he did all the, the milestone programs that incidentally changed his life. Mm -hmm. And he did them all. He just did them. Boom, 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 boom. And it whittled it down from 10 to three years. Do you think that was long enough, Dad? No. No. Do you believe I mean, that now? Yeah, I mean, it's not embarrassing. It's, it's embarrassing is the wrong word. It's, I mean, it's just not, not long enough. I mean, is 10 even long enough? I don't know. I don't want to get, that. that's a whole different discussion, right? right? right. And that may be your purview. <laughs> I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, although I know you deal with recovery, but mm -hmm. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, three years out of 10 doing manslaughter. Um, yeah, I mean, this isn't really about justice in this moment. This is really about reconnection and redemption and forgiveness, right? Kind of what your book is about. And I'm wondering, three years is still a long time for anyone. I don't care. I mean, especially those behind bars, one year is long enough. Ten minutes is, could potentially be too long for anyone under those conditions. Regardless of his time, what did you do when he was in there? Being so fucking angry and hurt, grief-stricken, all the feels, right? Your wife was more on the compassion side. You were more on the, like, do your time, don't, do, do it, and I'm not going to talk to you. But that didn't happen, did it? You actually did communicate with him. Yeah, I did. Tell me how that came about. The fact that you used the word feels I, makes me like you even more. <laughs> You know that song, right? Yes. Oh, love that song. Oh the fact God. that you just used that, now I really dig you. Okay, great. <laughs> and the fact that you said this isn't about justice. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I, I write about this because I struggled so much. I journaled about this for two years, the justice of it. Mm -hmm. 
from God's perspective, from a justice perspective, social justice, and for somebody's perspective, it's really hard as both Lucas, him, and me as a dad. It, it is the, it's a quandary. It is, there is no clarity, right. none. Now, I, I did reach some very, I think, at least for me, interesting places of justice and, and, and just somehow rationalizing and just, I mean, I even dived, dove into um, reincarnation, you know, just mm-hmm. that whole idea. I thought, well, maybe Rod's life is, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a big journaler. So, I mean, I would just spend time thinking. Mm-hmm. about how this all works. So I'm with you. It's not about justice. So I, I really appreciate that, mm-hmm. that you said that because I, I massively wrestle with that. But it is about renaissance. It is. Tragedy is not always the end. Sometimes it's the end, but a lot of times for the living, it's not. And for dad, it's not. For Lucas, it's not. It didn't turn out to be. It was. It was a chance to to rise and to mm-hmm. and to rebuild. And that's what he did. And that's what we did as a father and son. Yeah, we did. We we had a meeting about a month into his incarceration. The anger had subsided a little bit. And it was just me and him in the visiting room at L.A. County. And uh, you never get the visiting room alone. There's always other inmates with their loved ones. But this was one. This is my first visit with him, just the two of us. And it was it was alone. It was like, whoa, this is almost spooky. It's kind of weird. It was, right. And he walks in and I could tell he was humble. The drugs had worn off weeks before. And and he just had that look in his eyes. It was a little clearer of an eyeball. And Mm -hmm. the way he was looking at me, it was authentic. And I was like, oh, it almost felt strange Mm because it had been 10 years since Lucas and I had this genuine sober connection. And and I could tell he was feeling the emotion of everything. And 10 minutes in, he just completely breaks down completely starts bawling like I've never heard a man cry before and I'll be honest I didn't get emotional I'm getting emotional right now but mm-hmm. I didn't I just thought this is good mm. I've, I've waited a long time to see this happen to my son see him. And, it, and it happened and he and he actually looked up to me and he says dad I'm I'm so so sorry that I killed Rod and I was like Wow. And then he looked up, you know, he cried some more. He looked up and said, I'm so, so sad that I killed and sorry that I killed and that I made Valerie a widow. And that was, yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a beautiful moment and it was a horrific moment. And um, it was the beginning of the road back. Uh, oddly enough, the next day, that actually that day, I had a rebound of, of actual ill feelings towards him because it was almost like Lucas's honesty allowed me to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I think his parents were almost like holding our breath and we, we're not, we're not allowing ourselves to be as angry as we are or, or maybe whatever emotion. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, he just completely opens up and I get home that night and I'm actually angrier at him than before. Mm-hmm. I know that's weird. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. But it was the trigger that allowed me to process things over the next few days and weeks. We start to write each other. He starts to get real. I start to get even more real. We just start this letter writing mania that becomes this beautiful connection between a father and a son who talk about God, 
We talk about tragedy. We talk about rebuilding. Right. Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty beautiful moment. Tell me some of those letters, and you and I discussed this in, in your book on King David and Cool Hand Luke, those letters. <laughs> you my babes. <laughs> yeah, so early on I wrote Lucas. So, so Lucas had called me. You know, you got those 15-minute phone calls from Dale. He had called and said, hey, Pops, uh, this guy named Preacher Man just told me about David. And uh, he's this black dude, glasses, real studious kind of guy. And he stopped Lucas in the hallway. He said, hey, man, what'd you do to get in here? Which, of course, you're not supposed to ask, but he asked anyway. And Lucas said, yeah, I killed a man. And and he told me the story. And the guy said, well, David killed a man, too. He goes, what do you mean, David? Well, David David. is Bible. Yeah. (laughs) And so Lucas called me and he goes, hey, is this true that, that you know, kind of David and Goliath, David, that guy right. killed a man because David had slept with his wife and the man might find out. Right. That's, that's a crazy story. And I said, yeah, it actually happened. And, and her name was Bathsheba. And of course, you've heard Bathsheba. You've heard David saw her on the roof, right? Leonard Cohen, that song. He goes, yeah, oh, that yeah. song. That's that's David Bathsheba. Um, she was the one he saw bathing on the roof. <laughs> yeah. And so Lucas was like, well, I just had no idea that he too had done this. And it he goes, Dad, in this weird way, actually kind of it was kind of encouraging. Not encouraging. He didn't use that word, but he's just like, I mean, kind of cool to hear that. And so I hung up the phone and I thought, how how interesting would it be to write David, actually Lucas, as if I was David seeing her bathe on the roof. So I, I I wrote a first person account of David lusting after Bathsheba, sleeping with her, finding oh. out she's pregnant, calling her husband back from battle, trying to get him drunk so he'll sleep with Bathsheba. He refuses because he's, you know, he's in solidarity with his men who are on the battlefield. I mean, it's a great story. I'm sorry. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. How well did I write it? I don't it was like 40 pages. I was like, I can't wow. send this to Lucas. So I pared it down to about 10 or 12. So I send him the David story. I didn't know what he'd think. I was like, gosh, I just, this is me being crazy. You're crazy, dad. He gets it. He's like, dad, I loved this story. And largely because David, it wasn't the end of his life. To make this tragic mistake of purposely killing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Mm -hmm. Because David was humble, because he had humility, it wasn't the end of his life. He's confronted by Nathan later, and he just humbles out. He completely humbles out. He writes writes this beautiful poem that I wrote, Lucas. I just said, this was, I believe David had a second chance because he was so humble. And, and he wrote this story and Lucas mm. read the story and he was just like, you know, this, this really touched me. I, I cried. I, I don't know. This touched me and it touched me as a dad I, I, to write it. And, and you got to understand maybe that, you know, I had not opened my Bible or written anything about the Bible in 10 years. Cause you're not a pastor anymore at this point. I'm not a pastor and no. I don't go to church. I can't even open the Bible without a flood of memories, bad memories coming back into my mind. Mm-hmm. I can barely pray. I can't even go to church. I mean, we tried a few churches, but I couldn't go to church. I can't read my Bible. I'm just in a, com- I hadn't shaken my fist at God. Mm-hmm. I hadn't cursed him. 
but I was in a holding pattern. I was numb. Mm-hmm. So to do this with David, to get back, to open that Bible, I remember putting it on my desk. It's, I had this gorgeous brown leather, kind of heavy, beautiful Bible. And it just hadn't, it literally had dust on it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like literally. Mm-hmm. And I, I opened it, but, but to inhabit David like that and to, and to, to be in the presence of a man who blew it so badly and yet was a man after God's own heart. I don't know. It, it made, it made me feel like it made me feel less bad mm-hmm. for what, how I, you know, I had, gone numb, if you will, and to and to, to inhabit David like I did and to have it mess up so badly. I don't know. It was, it helped Lucas, but it, it helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of memories there. Yeah. And there's this parallel process with David and Lucas, it sounds like, and with you. I mean, that's the parallel to me. Isn't that interesting? Is is Lucas is seeing redemption, but so am I. I'm yes, seeing recovery, are. and he's seeing maybe for the first time. You know, he's seeing the, a, a light for the first time, and I'm kind of like re. I'm taking off the uh, the shade and opening myself up to, you know, maybe. Heck, at this point, I'm not even thinking of any recovery. I'm just. I'm living one in a moment at a, at time. a time, but but to do that with David was pretty cool. And then I did it with with um, Abraham. I did it with Solomon. You know, Solomon's maybe the the one, the most notorious addict in the Bible, <laughs> and, and his story is super cool. It's in Ecclesiastes, and it, I you know I, I did a scene uh, from Solomon for Lucas, and he liked that. So yeah, this. It started to snowball and started to make me feel like such less a leper, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> such a loser spiritually. Mm-hmm. The old has been minister, you know. And and uh yeah, I I could open my Bible where it wasn't so negative, right? Mm-hmm. So I start to recover. Luke starts to create this interest in God and starts to read C.S. Lewis, who I love, we both love. Mm-hmm. You know who doesn't isn't a headbanger. You know he's not a a weirdo. He he's, he's he approaches faith from a logical perspective and a, and a good a reasoned humble perspective. C.S. Lewis does, and and Luke starts reading him. I start reading rereading him. So yeah, we we start this tornado, this beautiful father son spiritual journey, recovery journey. It kind of all intertwined. It wasn't one thing or the other. <laughs> it was both. And it was over years. It was through letters. It was a beautiful journey. It sounds like a, a transformative journey. Like, how did that affect him throughout the last time, last few years in prison? And, and at this point, how is your relationship going at that point as your letters become more impactful and his letters to you more impactful. How did that relationship shift? It was everything a dad dreams about. Mm-hmm. Everything. And, and w- way more. And I don't say that. I mean, you, you, you've already heard me talk, so I'm not pieing this guy here. Right? right? Are you kidding me? This is, this doesn't happen. A father and son don't. And, and, the, and the God element was big. 
Because it, it gave yes. me hope for the future that this isn't just a father and son coming back together. And I'll be honest, Lucas struggled with kind of the AA approach. Mm-hmm. So his long-term recovery, I, I didn't feel like was probably going to be AA centered. Mm-hmm. And I and I dig AA. I think AA has a place in the world, and sure. I know you do too. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I talked a little bit about that. Absolutely. And for the person for whom that works, it's a beautiful thing. But I felt I it had just never resonated. And just with the personality, it just I didn't think that was. And I felt like a spiritual angle and a spiritual element was going to lead to a lifelong sobriety. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was what was needed. And and so to have that that along with our relationship grow to, to the degree that it grew was huge. What did you learn the most from this process with these letters? I think the value, the beauty of honesty and candor. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm honest to a fault, <laughs> so maybe that's maybe that's something that comes easy for me. I can be overly direct and, and all. But it seemed to help Lucas, seemed to really make a difference. He, he was honest with me mm-hmm. about even his, why he struggled believing in God. For him, evolution was a big deal. It felt like the scientific evidence was fairly high on the, on the left side, and it kind of discounted the right side. And, it, you know, it's like, can evolution and God coexist, for example? Mm-hmm. And that was a very honest question. We had a we discussed it. I felt. I feel like and felt like it can. It can coexist. I believe in evolution. Mm-hmm. I believe we have a 14 billion year old universe, like many scientists do. And that, to me, doesn't discount God. But that kind of honesty, and as well as honesty with each other, right. was was important and and remains important even today. Lucas is Lucas and I are very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's he lives a couple minutes from me. He's married now. He has a son named Finn. Very cool little blonde headed co-headed kid um and you know but even now we're very honest and i i asked him hey the book's coming out and i want to know how you feel about it i've asked you i asked him in prison i asked him Mm -hmm. shortly after prison i asked him a year ago and i asked him yesterday Uh now i'll be honest maybe it's hard for him it's his worst moment of his life broadcast to the world right i was wondering about that I don't know what your worst moment is. Let's talk about that. No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) That's for another time. (laughs) That's another podcast? Okay. (laughs) Don't ask me mine, right? I don't Mm. want you to broadcast mine. (laughs) Right. So Lucas, of course, and it's hard, but but he supports it. He is. He's like, Pops, I presented him a signed copy of the book Mm -hmm. uh, on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And um, it was was pretty awesome. It was the most mature he's been. He just, he was like, Dad, this is, this really, he looked at it. It's the first time he'd held the, the book in his hands. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a wonderful feel. I love how it turned out. It's his picture on the front. He's just mm-hmm. like, Dad, this is, he says, this is going to help people. And I was like, this is going to help people. And, you know, I think, I think in time, he's going to become comfortable to, to talk in front of others and to really, mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing I'd love more. One of my private dreams, of course, now it's not private. Now there's right. one of the mainly Just maybe just between you and me. <laughs> just between you and me. <laughs> you know, is it, we're on a stage together one day talk, talking to others and trying to help maybe other parents, other young people who are struggling. And, you know, that would be a dream. 
I think, I mean, that answered a lot of questions in terms of like, how does this affect your family now knowing this book is out? But I think one of the things, because forgiveness is in the title and I wanted to follow up with that, how has forgiveness been impacted by this process between you and your son and how do you view it now? Forgiveness? Yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. That's a deep word, right? It is. It's a deep word. It's like faith. I know. It's just. And that's coming. You know, is it forgiveness from God, forgiveness from Valerie, mm-hmm. forgiveness from society, right? There's so many layers to it. Right. It's a big one. Uh, I think that Lucas feels forgiveness from certainly from God in a way from the universe, the world, if you will. Mm-hmm. Not from Valerie. Obviously, we met, we we don't know what Valerie says. She's. He did write her, he wrote her several letters at the second year anniversary, wrote a wonderful, deep five page apology during the sentencing. He, in front of TV cameras with snot, literally snot Mm. hanging out of his nose for like a a foot, literally Mm. incredibly embarrassing visual image on the, on, on the news that night, an image that the inmates just ridiculed him for that night mm. he just poured out his life to valerie just said i am so sorry but will we have the moment will lucas have a moment with valerie one day i don't know i mean i it would, it's a prayer of mine and his sure. but but you can't wait for that i don't expect her i don't expect sure. anything from valerie right. but forgiveness to me is largely what you what you do with god and, and your humility. that That's the beginning point. What David did mm-hmm. when Nathan said, you, a man with many lambs, took the lamb from the man who had one lamb, is the, is the parable in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You evil man, you David. And David was humble. So I think that's the beginning of forgiveness from God. Forgiveness from the universe or the world or society I think that that is largely what you do with your life. What kind of man do you become? How you show up. Yeah. Yeah. How do you show up? How do you change your life? How do you serve and give and and live the rest of your life? Are you an asshole? Are you pretentious? Are are you um, entitled? Mm -hmm. Or are you gracious? Are you a lover of other people. I, I think if you're the latter, I don't know. I I think that, I'm not saying that's forgiveness. I'm saying that I think that's part of forgiveness. It's a very big piece, right? And for you, you were angry. You stopped praying for Lucas. When did you start? And what does forgiveness towards your son look like through your lens? It was still a long time before I even had a positive, optimistic thought about Lucas. It was years into his incarceration. There was a day, though, because it's funny. I remember having a positive thought about him. And I remember thinking to myself, it has been 10 years since I had a positive, optimistic thought about my own son. Wow. 10 years. It's a long time. A long time. time. But it, but it, one day it came. It, he, he wrote me a letter. He finished Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment. And he wrote me a letter after that. Mm-hmm. And he he just said, Dad, I've 
I feel like uh, Russ Kalnikov, who's the main character in that book, okay. who's been raised from the dead, who got a second chance, who started to see his life becoming, getting a future. When Lucas wrote me that letter, and I include that in the book, mm-hmm. I was sitting in my kitchen over, you know, we have this big window overlooking these mountains. And I, I remember just crying and thinking, oh my gosh, could it happen? And you realize I had not even imagined this, but I thought, could it happen? Maybe, maybe, maybe the one son I thought would never change, ever ever change could it actually happen and i i don't know i i i thought maybe it would and it in many ways was the beginning Mm -hmm. of his his own march back to sanity his march back to god his march back to us being close again and yeah it was and and in a way that's to me that's forgiveness that's that's renaissance that's Mm -hmm. That's recovery to me is, is when you get back to normalcy, to sanity, to sobriety. How did you and your wife do that together? I'm assuming it's happened. You're still together, right? Almost with We are years. together. We're good. We just celebrated 41 oh years. Oh, God. So, you know, that's amazing. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty cool. We, we, have a, we have a great relationship. I, um, the, the way I just my wife is is if I had a choice to have lunch with anyone on the planet I would choose Joyce <laughs> wow I know wow. and it's a weird way it's a weird metric to use but it, eventually <laughs> you know we're I don't wow. know we're, we're together uh I mean come on when you love Grey's Anatomy together that just I mean, says, that I, says, I mean need you say more I know but I'm gonna ask you to <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, like, we'll talk a little bit about this book and how it can help other parents, whether they're young parents or folks who have teenagers or grown kids, you know, who are struggling with addiction. But for parents to experience loss, it may not be a death, but it's kind of like that in some ways, I would imagine. Like losing really? three sons and then losing one again in such a huge as you mentioned, unforgivable crime kind of way. What is it that you both learned about each other to make you continue to stay together? I love the question. A weird, almost dichotomy of leaving room and, and yet staying together. In other words, like I mentioned earlier, her tack, her approach was very, was opposite one, literally the opposite. Mm-hmm. But she gave me space there. And yet we we were together enough to talk it through. I mean, she's writing in letters, mm-hmm. but they're they're really just "I love you." Yeah, you're awesome. And I'm like, yeah, he ain't awesome. He's an <laughs> asshole. Is what he is. <laughs> you know, murder. We're joking so about there's it. that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean there's all on. sorts of shit, right? And I'm not going to sit here and, and, and write telling me he's all he ain't awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and anyway, yeah, you know, but, but I'm not going to judge Joyce either. I'm not going to tell her what kind of letter to write my son. Mm-hmm. And she's not going to tell me what kind of letter to write my son. So there's this, this odd leaving space. And I, I just think it's big. If Joyce had cramped down on me, if she had judged me for, for going solo and going dark the way I did, I, I've been hard. I, I couldn't have dealt with it. I, it would cause more, more challenges yeah. than were already there. So we left Rome. We, um, 
We did have a spiritual interest. We, we hung in Ecclesiastes. That's all we could read for a long time. Mm-hmm. She'd show me a verse. And it's, you know, Solomon's a stoic. There's a guy that, that he went dark. And, and it was the only part of the Bible I could read. I mean, yes, Job. Job was cool. I love how he he just didn't curse God. He was kind of my model to not curse God. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, I can go silent before I curse God. I, I just didn't. It's just not how I'm built. I know mm-hmm. some people will curse God, and I'm not even judging them. Right. If you, if you go dark and you curse God, okay, whatever. Sure. Um, I'm just not built that way. So Job was helpful, but but Solomon was more helpful. And David, David's great in the Psalms. He's he's real. He just lays it out. All his insecurities, all his, you know, he it, that a few some of the Psalms are great, but to a really broken person, Joyce and I just we hummed it on Ecclesiastes, and mm-hmm. and we would share verses. We did try a few churches together that didn't work, um, but we did. I know I'm not giving you many specifics, but we we just I don't know we we here was the okay I will tell you this. In many ways, lost my faith. I'd lost my sons. Mm-hmm. I don't know, lately. I if I lost my wife too, I I don't I don't know if I could have. Oh, uh, it was. You talk about you know feeling alone in the world and just being, just almost, and and that sounds almost selfish to say you know I just couldn't leave, but I just couldn't. I had to have something. I I had to have somebody. And I chased everybody else off. I had almost chased myself off. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you just start going crazy when you're going through this as parent. What did I do? How did I blow it? Right. I, knew, I knew what I blew. I figured out what I blew as a parent. But, you know, it, eventually we just, I don't know. There, there, you, do you know the song Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. You know, would you lie with me? Would you lie with me? You know. You know, you and I against the world, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it was, it's a very melancholy song, and it's, it's, but it became our song. And, you know, it became, yeah, you know, honey, it's just gonna be you and me, baby, against the world. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna probably chase you off. You're gonna chase me off, but we're gonna kind of just somehow figure this out. That's kind of <laughs> what we did, right? It's kind of what we did. We just, it just, I'm not saying it was pretty. I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying anybody else would, you know, do that. I let Joyce handle the boys. I, I, you know, a few years into this 10-year thing, I was like, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. If you want to let Luke move back home, he can move back home. I, I'm not going to say anything anymore because I cannot lose you. Mm-hmm. That. I don't know a lot of things at this point. I, I don't know anything. Right? But I do know one thing. I can't be all alone in the world. And you are far from it. Yeah. Aren't you? It can feel that way. And I think that's a really honest way of looking at this because I'm working with several parents. They feel very lonely, not only just angry and confused about what the fuck just happened. How did we get here? But how do you also stay? I mean, there is some faith, I would imagine. And I I know I've used this word faith and forgiveness, but did you have faith with each other? Which is beyond trust, I think. I agree. I agree with you. And, and, Faith from a Godson perspective, yes. Now, granted, it was it was a toehold. It wasn't pretty. It was a clean. I mean, when you're reading Ecclesiastes and only Ecclesiastes, you're in a dark place. <laughs> well, let me just say, you are your toe, your your baby toe is the only thing hanging on. Okay. Right. Yeah. Let's just say that, mm-hmm. and that's true. True. It ain't pretty, and yet. 
did I did I have moments where I, I got mad that Joyce enabled them in a way that I felt like was enabling? Yes. But I, but I don't know. Maybe I just couldn't. I couldn't draw the line. Because here's the thing. You draw that line and something happens. You become the bad cop. You, you're the one that drew that made me draw the line and mm-hmm. Lucas killed himself or he died of an overdose. Or That's on whatever. you. God damn it. And all of a sudden, right. guess what? That's on me. Yeah. And how am I going to handle that? Now I've got a dead son and I have an estranged wife. Mainly, I call me a pussy. I, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think so. That I, is real. I, I kind of want to stay married and I, I don't want to be all alone in the world. I just yeah. don't. And the choice he made was right. She's still with you too. It's not just one way street. Joyce, please stay with me no matter how crazy I am reading Ecclesiastes. <laughs> but she no, chose man. to stay with you too. And, and I think that's, you know, your book on, yes, it's about parenting your son and how you showed up as a father differently than you did at the beginning of his arraignment. But it's also really about how you can stay true to yourself as a person without losing your fucking sanity. Like, as you know, you've been talking to other parents who have similar kind of losses. This is a lonely place, and it doesn't always make sense. It's like, why my son? Or, of course it's my son. You know, it's either one of those and hardly in between. So, you know, what your book, what messages do you want readers to take away? I I think the most natural knee-jerk instinct is, what did we do wrong as parents? Mm -hmm. And... I had to wrestle with that. I remember doing the reading of this book two years ago to a group of about 20 women. They were a reader's group down in the valley I was a part of. It was an awesome group of people, writers. Mm -hmm. And I read read a piece and they were like, well, Ken, what did you do wrong as a parent? We're not blaming you. We just want to know what did you, and I'll be honest, maybe I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I had a pathetic answer. And I drove home that day. I was like, Ken, you, you have no book until you can answer that question. You have no book. Mm-hmm. And um, my sons and I are all close now. Uh, mm-hmm. They married wonderful women and they live relatively close. We, so we get together every Sunday afternoon. We play pickleball. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, we have these <laughs> amazing pickleball matches. All the, it is funny because everyone's really close in, in, in level. But I mean, I'm the best. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, but, but what's interesting is I started to, so we get in the jacuzzi afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we play, we play for several hours on a Sunday afternoon. And we all get in the jacuzzi and we have a big meal. Mm-hmm. And I, I started saying, you know, guys, I, I wrote this chapter. and I, I remember this scene. And, and we start talking about what adolescence was like for them. When did this happen? And what did, what did I do? What did they do? Right. And it was so beautiful because my younger two sons, my oldest is the most, I don't know. He's just, he just thinks about this kind of stuff. And so he's, he was thinking a lot and he was the one that rebelled. He kind of started this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was through talking to him and through recreating our family through the teen years that I discovered, at least for me, that, you know, the single most important thing I learned as a parent, and that is that you have to follow your gut. You must be honest to how you genuinely believe you should handle something with your kids. You know, you share DNA. There's this 
almost invisible bond between you and your kids. And the only thing I would add to that is you have to follow your collective gut. In other words, you and your spouses, whoever's the parenting, even if you're separated from your spouse, even if, right, no matter what, there, there's usually not just one parent, but you, there's this amalgam of, the, of whoever's parenting. They have to f- somehow find what they should do. And for me, what I did, where, where things tipped, was I didn't follow my gut. I gave in to pressure. I was the pastor. Jess, yeah. my oldest, starts to freak out. He, you know, he actually left the youth group and was not a member of my church, you know, at one point. But when he decided to do that, we actually went to In-N-Out that day. We had burgers. And he said, Dad, I, I just need to be honest with you. I don't want to be a hypocritical Christian, and I can't do what I'm doing. And I, and I had said to him then, I did follow my guy. I said, son, this is between you and God, and you need to do what you need to do. That's fine. That was Ken Ghidro's being true to himself. A year later, I start getting pressure because Lucas follows in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. Two of my sons are not, you know, they start doing some crazy alcohol starts entering, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to get pressure from my higher ups. I get pressure from other parents. Mm-hmm. And it was this one incident. Jess came to me and said, Dad, I want to go to the Word of Formal. And I knew just because the temperature in my house had been rising, mm-hmm. he had been pushing. I just knew exactly what I needed to do. Come on, it's a freaking school dance. I should have said yes. Mm-hmm. But there was pressure and I just I I just gave in and I did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Very deliberately, the wrong thing. I didn't do it deliberately, but I knew that if I did this, if I said no, Jess was going to freak. And he freaked. He ran away that night. And it started. Maylee, literally, there's a direct line from that moment all the way to for the next 13 to 15 years was when I did not follow my gut. I did not do what I believed I should. Now, I believe in educating your gut. I believe, listen to podcasts, you you know, you talk to therapists, you get your help. Yes, yes, yes. All those things. But at the end of the day, especially at those moments, like, should we let it move back home? Should we say yes to this thing? Should You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There are some moments where you as a parent, you know, you just sense that it's a tipping point. And if, Mm -hmm. if you give into pressure, I think that's the wrong thing. And it was the wrong thing for me. And that's what, that's the biggest thing I learned about parenting from all of this. Wow. It's to trust your gut. Yeah. And and I would add one thing, maybe, and that Mm -hmm. is, I I think that the exercise of blaming yourself, it's mostly useless. And I know it's so easy for me to say, it's so easy. I have another young dad. His son is 16. He just called me. Mm-hmm. Good friend. Um, just two days ago. And I was trying to give him, I could just tell he was struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, what did we do wrong? It's like, it just doesn't, there's nothing. You, I'm not saying I didn't make mistakes. We did. But it, honestly, it, it, it's not, it wasn't my fault. It, and and I, I realized maybe, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe other parents mm-hmm. disagree. At the end of the day, it just it wasn't my fault. We did the best we could with what we had. Yeah. And you just have to let that be what it is. That's kind of accepting some things that, you know, in AA, you accept things you cannot change. In reality, that's true, too, is your fathering only went so far, and then they're their own men. They're their own people. They're an extension yeah. of you, but they are not you, right? And yeah. 
And I think that's a really important distinction is it's very common to beat yourself up. It's very common to go, what the fuck did I do wrong? I don't deserve to be a dad. I don't deserve to be a parent. Who the fuck yeah. do I think I am? Those are common. And I, I would add that. I mean, yes, it does not serve you, but I think it's a normal response, right? And so it's good in your book that you're like, just you have to allow yourself that grace in some ways too. Have you forgiven you for all of this? Yes. But let me just piggyback on what you're saying because yeah. I want to just be strong just for a second. I know that there are parents out there that think that there's a right and wrong way. Mm-hmm. And they, they would look at some of the things I did and they was, oh, well, you fucked up here. You, you blew it here. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot tell you maybe how strongly I disagree with that. There are tiger moms out there and if they did it, they, if they follow their gut, they can raise a kid with all kinds of authority. Amen. Hallelujah. Right. And there are such enablers out there. Yep. And they can raise their kid the way they can raise them and they can turn into saints. They can be mm-hmm. incredible. They're you in just in my opinion, mm-hmm. it is the height of arrogance for any parent, any therapist, anybody out there to say, I know the right way. Absolutely. And what you did here is wrong. I'm sorry, I just don't believe it anymore. Because mm-hmm. I have seen everything. I have seen the enabler, their child go to West Point. And I have seen the tiger mom's child be a complete asshole. Mm-hmm. It, there's no rhyme or reason. And I'm not even saying, I, just there's, at least from what I've seen, there's no strong correlation. There's no book, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's no rule book. And for you and I to sit here and beat ourselves up over something we did, if we had the right yeah. heart, I don't know. It just doesn't serve as well. Mm-hmm. So to your question, have I forgiven myself? I'm a bit of an asshole there. Maybe I forgive myself too quickly. <laughs> right? But I, it's just my personality. It, mm-hmm. Yes. Did I beat myself up? Yes. Even with my sons, you know, I it was one time in the jacuzzi where I go, yeah, guys, I kind of, I blew it for you. And you know what they said to me? They said, dad, we were assholes. Mm-hmm. You did what you should do. Come on. Best right? answer ever. We're, wow. <laughs> we were just wow. assholes. We would have kicked our ass. Even just this week, just last week. My, I, I commented about the winter formal to my son. I kind of, I didn't apologize, but I remember I, I, I was emailing him and I just said something about it. He came back the next day. I saw him. He goes, dad, by the way, you handled the winter formal probably just fine. So, you know, I don't know. There's Maybe no straight line in this stuff. Yeah, you know, there just... really isn't. I think your book is definitely needed. It gives voices to people who feel like parents who feel like they're crazy. You know, their whole life has been like gaslit or, you know, their kids are crazy. So they're bad, you know, and there's no, you're right. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no one way answer, but I, but I would say that your book and I have yet to read it, but I will, I would say it is part of a solution. It is part of an insight. It is part of a dialogue that is definitely needed so other parents don't feel like crazy town and alone. Yeah. It's it's the picture of one couple kicking, scratching, and clawing their way to sanity. That's all it is. It's a strong cup of coffee. It is. And it's just me. With God, with my wife, Mm -hmm. with my sons. I'm just kicking, scratching, and clawing. I, I don't know if it's right. Uh, I, I want to be close to them, and I am, by the grace of God. I want to be close to my wife. 
I want to, I want to have a woman that I, I, you know, I, I spend the rest of my life with and mm-hmm. I, and I'm lucky. Right. And with God and, and to be real honest with you, God's number one in, in terms of importance. I got, it's, this isn't just about a happy ending because, because right. mainly, you know, as well as I do, tragedy is going to happen in every life. Yeah. It's right. The good days, right. Today is good, but come on. Tomorrow this moment be is great. This moment right. is great talking to you i have this pretty cool story but you know as well as i do that tomorrow something's going to happen it's going to happen to me the bigger more exciting thing is i do feel like i have learned to deal with trauma a little bit i think i learned a a lot through this i it wasn't a month of darkness it wasn't a year of darkness it was a long darkness Mm -hmm. and somehow I clawed my way back. And I, I think if if a tragedy befell my wife tomorrow or one of my grandkids or one of my sons, you know what I mean? Come on, l- list out the things in your life that can happen that could be bad, right? You, the list is endless. Right. It's endless. going, and, and I, I hope that this kicking and scratching and clawing will help in future kicking and scratching and clawing. I just, I want to stay with God. I want to stay sane. I don't want to drink too much. I don't want to be an asshole. Those are a few of my life goals. Mm-hmm. And you want <laughs> to stay it. connected. You don't want to be alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But also, I would say this is coming from a deep, deep place, not just of faith and forgiveness, but of love, just true love. And this is a love story between two men who are father and son. And so it has been a pleasure. It is that, you know, and it's... Yeah. I guess no one can ever take that away, right? Even tragedy can't take that away. The fact that Lucas and I, Mm -hmm. and and Jess and I and Chris and I are are close. And even the book, you know, they're texting me this morning. They're so excited. Mm -hmm. Um, They're posting it on, uh, you know, everywhere. Yeah. This is a family thing. Even the the wives of of these, uh, of my sons, you know, it's a family affair where we realize that we have this, terrible gift that was thrust upon us and i use gift completely with complete respect to Mm -hmm. valerie and to rod complete complete deference Mm -hmm. but this this tragedy that was thrust upon us that that can help others because mainly you of all people you Mm -hmm. you you see the person the people when they're flailing you see them when they're ugly when they're assholes yeah and they're assholes to you and to themselves and to right. their spouses and to mm-hmm. you, you see the worst. And if this book can be, and, and beyond book, this story, you know, cause I'm, cause I mean, I'm continuing to write, I'm writing a newsletter. I wrote, I, yeah. I wrote a les- newsletter I published yesterday called three ways I'm trying not to be an asshole in my sixties. Cause mainly that's one of my goals is to not be an it. asshole, you know? <laughs> and I, and I, I think about it because I have asshole thoughts all the time. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I just have them. And it's so funny. My wife read it. She's not an asshole. I mean, <laughs> everyone's an asshole to a degree. But she was like, oh, you know, she goes, like, she read it. She goes, this is so funny because it's, and then Lucas also read it. And he goes, you know, as I'm going about my day, I'm thinking, when I have an asshole thought, I kind of think about the piece you wrote. Because come on, we, we all have the thoughts, right? Oh, yeah. We have them. Mm-hmm. And 
whether it's assholeness or just unhealthiness about mm-hmm. being a parent and blaming yourself or whatever causes you to fall into this viral addiction, whatever it is, your thoughts, your crazy thoughts, we all have them. The question is, what do we do with them? Do we process them? Do we, and this is just me. This is me saying, here are three things I do to process my asshole thoughts when they pop in. And you have yours. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to find your three ways. And hopefully your clients will find their three ways. I love that. And how can people find your book? Well, it's everywhere. It's everywhere okay. books are sold. Lucas and I did narrate it. He he wrote me. Yeah, Lucas wrote it. Right at the end of his stay, um, he wrote me this this letter called Two Men. And it's contrasting his life with my life. And it, oh. you know, it's so well written. So <laughs> Lucas is also a good writer. So he wrote, and he just kind of said, here's, you know, I'm getting off my, my bat, my cot. The line to the hot water in the sink is, is long, men getting their coffee. So he's kind of painting his daily life and my mm-hmm. daily life. Anyway, so he narrated that chapter in the book, which is kind of oh, cool. Wow. But um, it's everywhere. So we narrated the audiobook. I narrated the audiobook. And then, of course, it's ebook, paperback. But you did ask mainly about Cool Hand Luke. Can I, I do you mind if I just take a second? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Okay. So anyway, it's, it's the last chapter. Luke is his name. Cool. So, you know, that was our favorite movie and it's about, you know, Paul Lumen in prison. And so, so I, I wrote a chapter that kind of brought in the movie Cool Hand Luke with where Luke was at and, Your son, and the right. nothingness that he mm-hmm. had in his life and right. how he was going to take nothing and make it into something. And Ron Valerie had nothing. I had nothing. Lucas had yeah. nothing, you know, and out of our nothingness, it's, it's interesting. Just, just on, on Instagram yesterday, this gal read it, a gal in recovery. And, oh, she wrote the greatest review on Instagram I've ever seen. And she says, out of the nothing came something. And I thought, yes, that's mm-hmm. the book, you know, that's, that's what's happened. So yes, oh, uh, you know, that, that. that was a, maybe the, the most fun chapter to write was that particular one. I love that. And what a way to end from nothingness to something. And this is really something to say the least. So what a pleasure. I, I can't wait to get your book. I can't wait for other families. I think this book is for everybody who's struggling, who may or may not be an asshole. You don't have to be an asshole to read this book. You just, you know, anyone who struggles in a relationship. Yeah. And that's what this is. It's, it's, it's a, about relationships and how to keep them close. So again, thank you so much for your time, Ken. It was such a pleasure. Absolutely. This was a, was a blast. And, and thank you for your insight and your questions. Oh, I loved it. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.